continuing our series where we go up to in Exodus, but we're just coming to God giving the law and the beginning of the Ten Commandments. So we're going to read actually from Deuteronomy this morning as part of our series. So we're going to read the first 14 verses of Deuteronomy chapter 4. Now Israel, hear the decrees and laws I am about to teach you. Follow them so that you may live and may go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your ancestors, is giving you. Do not add to what I command you, and do not subtract, subtract from it, but keep the commands of the Lord your God that I give you. You saw with your own eyes what the Lord did at Baal Peor. The Lord your God destroyed from among you everyone who followed the, the Baal of Peor. But all of you who held fast to the Lord your God are still alive today. See, I have taught you decrees and laws, as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations, who will hear about all these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? Only be careful. And watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them fade from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb when he said to me, Assemble the people before me to hear my words so that they may learn to revere me as long as they live in the land and may teach them to the children. You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, while it blazed with fire to the very heavens, with black clouds and deep darkness. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. He declared to you his covenant, the Ten Commandments, which he commanded you to follow and then wrote them on two stone tablets. And the Lord directed me at that time, to teach you the decrees and laws you are to follow in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. Whenever you start uh, with something new, whether it's a, a new job or a new school, there is often a moment when you need to learn the rules uh, of that organization or that setting. And I wonder when that happens, whether it's shared an assembly at school or whether it's circulated to you with the new joiners information pack, how do you feel as you work through those rules? Do you see them uh, perhaps as a necessary thing, but something to endure and just get through? Do you see them as a constraining thing, something to accept, but only really begrudgingly because... You've got to do it if you want to be in that school or if you want to be in that workplace. Well, as we come in God's word to Exodus chapter 20, and that moment where God shares what we know as the Ten Commandments, I want us to pause before we work through the commandments in detail 
to think about the importance of how we hear these commandments from the Lord. It really matters that we frame and we think in right ways as we hear God's law. That matters because our sinful nature will always hear this law in wrong ways. Our first response to it will be wrong. We'll think of it as something constraining that takes away our freedom. We'll, we'll think of it as something that we need to endure and just tolerate in that sense. And that's because in our sinful natures, we do not like rules to be given to us. If we're really honest about our hearts and reflecting upon uh, the human heart, we are quick to impose rules upon others and impose our own expectations upon others. But personally, ourselves, well, we just want to be free. Or we want to be the captain of our own soul. And that's why we read from the book of Deuteronomy. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 4... Moses is preparing God's people to hear in Deuteronomy chapter 5 a reminder of the Ten Commandments. They're restated there in Deuteronomy 5 before the people of God go into the land of Canaan. Moses pauses and gives in Deuteronomy what is an extended sermon of preparation. It's his last words to God's people before they go there into Canaan. And what he presses home upon them before they hear this law as a reminder, is the goodness of God's law and the privilege of having that law. So as it was read to us, if you and if you have a Bible, uh, look with me there in Deuteronomy chapter 4, and we read these words in chapter 6, sorry, chapter 4 and verse 6, observe them, these lords, carefully. For this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who hear about all these decrees and say, surely this nation is a wise and understanding people. And as we jump down to verse 8, we read this. And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws that I am setting before you today? Now, isn't it striking there that the law of God is described as righteous? And that fits with what we read elsewhere in the Bible about how we are to think about God's law. So if we were to jump to Psalm 19, we hear these words in Psalm 19, verses 7 to 9, about the law of God. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. We just sang from Psalm 119, not the whole psalm, but a few of the verses of it. And we, we sang verses 7 to 16. We read in verse 16, I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Elsewhere in the book of Romans and the New Testament, Paul describes God's law and commandments as holy, righteous, and good. So friends, a question this morning is this. Is that how we are going to hear God's law 
as we work through the Ten Commandments over the coming weeks and months. That's what I want us to think about today. That we might see and know the privilege of having God's law so that we might teach our hearts to treasure these commandments and see them as good, as a good thing, as a gift of our God. But before we get to think about that, I just want to ask a question that we might have as we come to this subject. What is God's law? What do we mean when we speak of God's law? Because the word law can be used broadly in the Old Testament and New Testament. Sometimes in the Bible speaks of God's law, it speaks of the all of Scripture. At other times in speaking of the law, it's referring to the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. At other times it refers to all the commandments of the Old Testament, and then at other times it refers to the Ten Commandments in particular. Now, context helps us to know which we're referring to, and this is important, but as I use it today, and as we speak of the law of God... I am referring to the enduring moral law of God as given in the Ten Commandments. So when we talk of the law, we're thinking of the enduring law of God, the moral law of God given in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments summarize God's moral law, but they don't, they're not the first place it's introduced. We find it before in the book of Genesis. We find it afterwards as Jesus teaches and the apostles teach. And we need to see this very clearly together. It's striking that in our Confession of Faith, the uh, London uh, Baptist Confession of Faith, 1689. In chapter 19, there is a whole chapter devoted to the law of God. And we read these words in the Confession. That God gave Adam a law written on his heart. That's the moral law. And the same law that was first written on man's heart continue to be a perfect rule of righteousness after Adam fell into sin and was given by God upon Mount Sinai in the form of Ten Commandments written on two tablets. The ten are known as the moral law. So why is it that the confession teaches that and why is it that I've just said these Ten Commandments are God's enduring moral law? I just want to make three brief points before we move on. And the first is this, that we see that these 10 commandments don't just occur in Exodus 20. We find they are in place and practiced from creation. So they're not introduced in Exodus chapter 20. They are put into man's heart in creation and so are assumed and applied from the very beginning. Where do we see that? Well, we see that, for example, in the command to faithfulness in marriage. So whenever the marriage covenant is broken by in Genesis, that is sinful. Why is it wrong? Because it's been put in the human heart. We also see it in the Sabbath rest principle that is a creation pattern that is practiced there in creation. And then from there onwards, although we find it in the Ten Commandments, it's assumed as we go through. The best example we saw of that was in Exodus chapter 16. There before Sinai, when the manna was given in the wilderness, God gave a double portion of the manna on the sixth day in preparation that God's people might rest on the seventh day. So before the Ten Commandments are given, we have in creation these patterns as well. And these enduring moral laws are there because of creation truths. So, for example, 
The command, do not murder, is applied before Exodus 20 at the very beginning when Cain is judged for killing his brother. Now, why is that wrong? Why would it be wrong to kill? Well, it's wrong because mankind has been made in the image of God and value and dignity has there been given to all people. Also, we see these laws uh, practiced in creation principles and the command not to steal. So when Rachel steals from her father, it's clear that her actions are wrong. Why? Because there's a creation principle behind it. God owns everything. In his wisdom, he has given property to people. And we should not take from others that which God has given to them. So these ten commandments are seen in creation before we come to Exodus 20. But also, as we look into the New Testament, we see that Jesus taught that the Ten Commandments endure. As we look at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, when Jesus is there teaching what it means to live as his people, what does he do? Well, he starts with a statement about the law of God. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20, Jesus says, sorry, 17 to 19, Jesus says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the stroke, least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And I note Jesus' words here. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commandments and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commandments will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So Christ is saying that these commandments endure. And later on, when he speaks about adultery and anger, what does he show? He shows the, the depth of the commandments is given so that we know that, that to not murder um, extends to, to not being angry with someone in our hearts. And to not commit adultery extends to not lusting after someone in our hearts. It's also striking that when the Lord Jesus Christ seeks to show men and women that they are sinners he goes back to the Ten Commandments as a standard for what is right and wrong. So in Matthew chapter 19, when the rich young man comes to the Lord Jesus and he wants to show him that he is indeed a sinner in need of grace, what does he do? He repeats the commandments to him. So Jesus taught that these commandments endure. And then as we look at the rest of the New Testament, we see again and again the apostles go back to the Ten Commandments in giving moral instruction. A good example of that would be Romans chapter 13, verses 8 to 10, where Paul teaches of how love is a fulfillment of the summary of the law, and then he states some of the Ten Commandments. So in an age where some might say, we only are to follow the law of Christ, not the Ten Commandments, we would say no. We would say the Ten Commandments are the moral law of God. 
The Ten Commandments have been written on the human heart from creation because they are grounded in creation principles and truth. They were binding before Exodus 20. They are assumed and applied after Exodus 20, right into the New Testaments. And so we might say that the Ten Commandments is Christ's law because the Ten Commandments are God's enduring moral law. So, that's what we mean by the law of God. But now I want to come to this question. How should we hear and receive this law? What should our attitude of hearts be? And friends, the big thing I want us to grasp this morning, the big thing that is pressed home there in Deuteronomy 5, and as we think about the law, we'll see this, is that we are privileged to have it. We are privileged to have this law. And I have five reasons. And the first is this. We are privileged to have this law because this law reveals the character of God. The commandments reveal the character of God to us. They teach us something about his character. So think with me just about a few of the commandments. The the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. What does that teach about God's character? Well, it teaches who God is. It teaches that God is one true and only God. He is without rivals. And it teaches also that he is omnipresent. He is everywhere. He is not just the God of one nation or one people group. He is not one God among many. He is the omnipresent, one true and living God. That first commandment teaches about God's character. But let's think about the fourth commandment, to remember the Sabbath day while keeping it holy. Well, that commandment reminds us that God is sovereign in his character over all of life. And that means that we should work with diligence for six days a week and rest on the seventh day because God has authority over every moment of our lives. The fourth commandment teaches about the authority of God over everything. And then uh, in the ninth commandment, where we're taught not to lie, very simply, what does that teach us about God? It teaches that God loves truth. Because he is a God who speaks truth. So, friends, if you want to know more about the character of God, study these commandments. Reflect upon what they teach us about who God is. And as we hear God's commandments, recognizing that they are an expression of his character, let us then remember that means that these commandments are not arbitrary. They're not arbitrary because they are grounded in the character of God. They're, They're not just conventions in order to make life work. They are expressions of God's character. That makes a huge difference because I don't know about you, but when I was at school, and the polygamy still does this when I'm on the underground, and I see the sign that says, walk on the left, my heart thinks, why? I want to walk on the right. There's no reason why not. And on one sense, it's arbitrary. I know it's necessary. I'm not advocating right walking on the wrong side of the corridor. But as we hear God's law, this is really key. Do not think that God's commandments are just arbitrary. Because they express his character and reflect his character... 
we receive them as such. They are true not just because God states them. They are good not just because they are good laws, but they are true and God because good because they reflect God's moral purity. We'll see as we go later on that the holy God has given us his holy law so that we might know what it looks like to live as his holy people. So we might reflect the holiness of our God. So it is a privilege to have this law because this law reveals the character of God. But then secondly, friends, it is a privilege to have this law because this law shows us that we are sinners. Without this law, we would not know what sin is and we would not know that we need a saviour. In the book of Romans, chapter 7 and verse 7, Paul says, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. So the moral law, the Ten Commandments, shows us God's holiness. And as we study that law, we see how far short we have fallen from God's perfect standard. And that's a great thing. Let me tell you why. It's a great thing because without this law... We might think we are good enough in ourselves to know God. And friends, there are still some who think that way, and maybe you do today. Maybe you look at your life and think, I'm okay. I'm a good person. Well, friends, how do you measure up against this law? Have you ever told a lie? Well, you've broken the ninth commandment. Have you ever looked with lust? Well, you've broken the seventh commandment. Have you ever been angry unjustly? Well, you've broken the fifth commandment. And if you're not a Christian today, and you think that you don't need the Lord Jesus Christ, my, my challenge to you, my plea to you, is to keep coming over the next few weeks and months as we work through these Ten Commandments together and be asking this question, how do I measure up against these commandments? How do I measure up against God's perfect law? And as we seek, as the Lord's people, to to show others their need of Christ, we need to keep on coming back to this moral law. Here's an example from the past. About 200 years ago, a missionary called Henry Martin went to India, and in his diary, he wrote these words. Having read the law and the prophets to my servants for three quarters of a year, I thought them sufficiently prepared for hearing the gospel. So I began reading Matthew to them. Now, we might wonder if he was a little too rigid in his approach, and I think he probably was. But his order was right because he sought to show the need of the Lord Jesus Christ before he spoke of all that Christ has done. And friends, how important it is as we go about that that work of making Jesus known today, as we're engaged in mission in different ways, and as we seek to invite people to speak in different contexts, how important it is that they follow that same pattern, that we speak of our need and we show that we have fallen short of God's standard before we come to speak of Christ and what he came to do. And as we learn of our sin, we see that we need to seek a saviour. As Paul says, the law is a teacher. The law shows us a way to Christ. 
the one who kept the law perfectly as Tim prayed, the the one who kept all the penalties of the law for us so that by faith in him we can be truly pardoned and made right with God. So we are privileged to have this law because it shows us we are sinners and our need for the Lord Jesus Christ. But then our third point, the law restrains evil in society. This moral law was given to be a foundation for a stable and happy society. Now, in in the book of Romans, we know in Romans 13, Paul speaks of how God establishes as governing authorities to bring order and punishment upon the wrongdoer. That's one of the right and proper roles of the state. But the question is, by what standard is wrongdoing to be judged? What's a standard for right and wrong? We know that anarchy is not a good way for society to function. We know that we need laws. But what standards should structure our society? And friends, the answer is that the moral law of God is given by the God of all creation to govern all of his creation. I say this because there is a a common view, but it's a wrong view that says this, that our world's greatest need is the gospel. Absolutely true. Only Christians can follow and obey God's law, and so we shouldn't seek to encourage those who don't know Christ to follow God's laws. Instead, people sometimes say, we should give all of our energy into evangelistic outreach alone. And if that's true, then some might say there's no place for the work of organizations like the Christian Institutes, who do what? Seek to show the goodness of God's moral law for all of society. Well, that view is wrong, and it misses that we need law to govern our lives as society. God has made us so that we might have those structures. So what will be the standard that we seek to encourage in our world? Do we want to be governed by the laws decided by the majority? Do we want to be governed by the laws decided by the crowd? Do we want to be governed by laws decided by the preferences of the elite or rulers? No. We want to be governed according to the law given by the good God who is all wise, and establish these laws for all people's good. Now, because of our sinful actions and natures, salvation cannot come through obeying the law. We cannot make ourselves acceptable to God, but sin can be restrained by God's good laws. And that is a good thing. It is a good thing because it provides a stable setting in which the gospel can be shared. It is a good thing because it allows God's people to live quiet and peaceful lives. And it is a blessing to all people to live under God's moral law. Because in that context, we are taught to keep our promises, to respect property, to rest and have freedom to worship God. So we might say that people are eternally blessed through salvation in Christ But nations and people know temporary blessing if we keep the Ten Commandments. They are given to restrain sin and evil in society. 
That's a privilege. And now we come to the fourth reason. It's a privilege to have God's law because this law shows believers how to live. Two weeks ago, we were in Exodus chapter 19, and we looked at this question of why has God saved us? What's God's purpose in saving us? And one of the purposes we saw for why God rescued his people from Egypt and why God saves us as his people today is that we might be a holy nation. And we saw that meant that we might be devoted to God. So that means that God's goal in saving us is that we might live this holy life. But Israel failed to live a holy life because their hearts were evil and hardened. But having known God's rescue, having been saved through the Lord Jesus Christ, we have a new nature. The Spirit lives within us and we are enabled to obey God's law so that we might be this holy people. So that we might reflect the moral purity of God. So the holy God gives us his perfect law so that we might live according to it to reflect his holiness. Now there are shifts between the old covenant and the new covenant as we think about the differences between the people of God in Exodus and the people of God today. But there is not a new law, a new moral law. God's unchanging moral law is put in a new place in the new covenant. One of the things that um, blessed me this week as I was reflecting on this was to look at Jeremiah 31, the great promise of the new covenant there in the Old Testament through the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 31, we get a promise about the coming of the new covenant. So let me read to you uh, verse 33. And listen for where the law goes. I'll start in verse 31. Jeremiah 31 and verse 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Here we come to the new covenant. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Did you notice where the law goes? The law that was written on the tablets of stone is then written somewhere else. It is written on the believer's heart such that it becomes a part of who we are. Now, you might hear that and think, hang on a second, haven't we said the law is on everyone's heart from creation? And on one sense it is because it's in every human conscience. But I think what the Lord is teaching here is it becomes more deeply part of who we are. It becomes a part of of, of, of the depth of who we are. We have this new deep desire to obey. We have renewed hearts. We have the spirit within us. And so we have a new power to enable real obedience. It goes deeper because the spirit implants it there inside of us. So the law doesn't disappear. The law becomes the guide to how we are to grow in holiness. But if we see that, then we might have two questions 
about this call to reflect God's holiness as God's holy people. One question might be, how can Ten Commandments guide all of our lives? Surely we need more than ten laws to guide all of our lives. Now, over the coming weeks, I'm I'm praying that one of the things we'll see is there is a great depth and reach to these commandments. To see them just as very narrow things is to miss what God is saying through them all. We'll see that they they are rich and deep because we'll see that Jesus taught, as we saw in Matthew 5, that they cover not just our actions, but also our mind and our will and our affections. We'll see that when God tells us not to do something, he is telling us what we should do. And when he tells us that we should do something, he is telling us what we should not do. So, for example, in being told not to bear false witness implies that we are to speak truth. And then we'll also see, and this is key, that when God commands us to avoid one sin, that implies all other connected sins. So, for example... The command, do not commit adultery, doesn't just call us to sexual purity within marriage, but implies sexual purity for the unmarried as well. In that way, I think as we see that that God's law has great extent and application, we see that the way in which it can indeed guide all of life picture that came to mind as I thought about this is a bit like an accordion. Because you know with an accordion, you look at it and you see that it's relatively small. And then you clip off the top and you clip off the bottom and you start to expand and you see that it's actually very, very large. It has great breadth. And, and God's law is just like that. You could say, well, there are just two great commandments. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbors yourself. But then you could say, well, those two great commandments are reflected in ten commandments. They're in the moral law. But then those Ten Commandments, well, they have made great width of application. So it expands in that sense. So yes, these Ten Commandments can be the guide to all of life. But then the other question we might have if we see this is then, secondly, doesn't God just want us to love him rather than obey him? Some might say, well, surely it's wrong to be prescriptive. And surely it's better just to say, living the Christian life is about loving God in our hearts. Well, to say that is to do something the Bible doesn't do, which is to put love in conflict with obedience. The Bible never puts those two things as opposites. Two ways to see that. What does Jesus say in John 14, verse 15? If you love me, keep my commandments. The expression of our love is obedience. And then, in 1 Corinthians 13, a great chapter all about love, what does Paul show us about love? Well, he shows us that love is very prescriptive. Think of 1 Corinthians 13 and all the things that are said that love is and love isn't. So to turn love and put it against obedience is a mistake. Having come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, obedience and love are closely linked. So it is a privilege to have this law, friends, because this law shows believers how to live. 
It shows us what it looks like to love our great God. But then fifthly and finally, it is a privilege to have this law because this law brings true freedom. True freedom is not living without law. True freedom is being able to live according to what is good. And as we work through the Ten Commandments and seek to put them into practice in our lives, we will find that our lives are resting upon a solid and steady foundation that gives us freedom. C.S. Lewis uh, once commented, it might seem odd that the psalmist speaks of delighting in God's decrees. But the point is that God's decrees give the psalmist a sure foundation upon which to build his life. And in that way, that life of obedience does indeed become a delight. So friends, as we close, do not believe the oldest of lies. The oldest of lies from the very beginning was to say that God's law is given to restrict our growth and our joy. Because that was what the devil said in the Garden of Eden. God is taking away your freedom by the law that he gives. Don't do that. Don't believe it. True liberty is not a world without law. True liberty is living under God's law with a renewed heart and with the Spirit's help such that, as Richard Sibb said, true freedom is found when by the Spirit the heart is renewed, is enlarged, and becomes subordinate to God in Christ. And so, friends, for that reason, the law of God is the way to freedom. And as we work through this law over the weeks to come, and as we feel the challenge that's going to be there to each of us in our lives in different ways, where God calls us by his Spirit and through his word to turn and repent, to change and to grow and to walk in his ways, may our prayer and attitude always be how thankful we are because we have these righteous decrees and laws. Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, we give you our thanks that you, in your kindness, have saved us from slavery and bondage to sin, that we might belong to you as your people. We thank you that you have called us your treasured possession in our Lord Jesus Christ. And we bless you that you have called us to a life of holiness through your holy law, because you are a holy God. Lord, we thank you that as your people, we have this great calling for our lives. And we pray that you would help us as we hear your law over weeks to come. As we see more of our sin, may we rejoice more deeply in our Savior and all that he has come to do for us. And may we, with the Spirit's help and with that joyful obedience that you call us to have, be diligent and encouraged to walk in your ways. Father, may we never see your law as constraining, as restricting. May we never have that attitude of begrudging acceptance. But may we, with your help,
delight in your decrees. May we know that true freedom that comes in living according to your ways. And give us help, we pray, that we might in this way glorify your name in all things. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.